So, I, at the end of January, I began a series on Galatians. Um, I hope that most of you were here for that. Uh, we looked at um, Galatians 1. We started looking at the importance of reading the Word of God in context. And I gave you guys a couple of examples of how when we take the Word of God and we don't look at the context within which it's placed, we can actually make it say something that it was never intended to say. Okay, and that is not great. Um, so we looked at that. We looked at who the recipients were of the book of Galatians, um, who Paul was writing to and why he was writing to them. And we also looked at Paul, who's the author of Galatians, and we looked at a bit of his history and his life and about the significance of the message in Galatians, specifically um, with which how it pertains to him personally, um, that he's really an example of his message. So we looked at all of that in my first in my first message, and we continue. We, we basically looked at Galatians one verse one up to Galatians one verse nine, and that's where we started. And I really want to exhort you and encourage you. If you weren't here, if you didn't get that message, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. Please go onto our website www.gochurch.co.za familiarize yourself with that message. I think it makes it so powerful and so poignant when we see where it's coming from and whom it was written to and the opening statements in Galatians 1. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to rehash any of what I covered then. You can go and get that message if you want to. Um, if you see the need to. And I'm going to pick up where we left off, which is Galatians 1 verse 10. Galatians 1 verse 10. And this, for me, it's quite an explosive and straight-hitting truth. And, and literally, if we took this and applied it to our lives, I think it would radically revolutionize the church. Radically. And this is what Paul says, Galatians 1 verse 10. Am I now trying to win the favor and approval of men or of God? Am I seeking to please someone? If I was still trying to be popular with men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I would not be a bondservant of Christ. That's a really powerful thought. He's saying, if you fear man, you can't serve Christ. I'm not trying to serve man. I'm trying to serve God. Paul is saying, I'm not trying to please any man with the gospel that I'm preaching to the people in Galatia. Remember I said, <clears throat> in Galatia, the churches in Galatia, he'd been through, he'd shared the gospel with them, and there were some other false teachers who followed after him who said, no, 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 Paul has changed the gospel. It also includes this and this and this, parts of the ceremonial law, parts of the Mosaic law. And they said, we know the full gospel. Paul has changed it a bit. Maybe he didn't know the full gospel. Maybe he didn't have the full picture. Maybe he's afraid of man and he's making it easier for you all. But this is the real gospel. Paul's gospel is not the true gospel. So Paul is responding and he's saying, I'm not trying to change the gospel to suit anybody. I'm not trying to change the gospel to make it easier for anyone. I don't, I don't fear man. I'm not trying to please man. I'm doing it for God. So he says, yeah, he's not afraid of any customs. He's not afraid of any laws. He's not afraid of anyone. anyone. He just wants the churches to know the truth and to have the true gospel and not the false gospel. 
And if I look in Luke 16, verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. And of course, Jesus is saying this in the context of God and mammon. But the, the principle applies. We can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and also our family. We can't serve God and also our friends. We can't serve God and also our own idols in our hearts. We can't fear God and fear man. It's one or the other. And that is what Paul is saying. In Proverbs 29 verse 29 it says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. So we see the same principle here. The fear of man brings a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. I love what Jesus says in John 5, verse 41 to 44. He says, I do not need or accept or receive the praise and the honor from people, but I know you, that you do not have God's love in you. I've come from my Father and speak for him, but you do not receive me. But when another person comes speaking for himself, you will receive him. You try to get praise and glory and honor from each other, but you do not get the praise and the glory and the honor that comes from the only God. God. So how can you believe? Jesus is also very hard hitting with that truth. He's like, do you receive and live for the praise and the glory and the honor from man? Or do you receive and live for the praise and the glory and the honor that comes from my father? Because the two cannot live together. How can you believe in God and say you're a believer if you're living for the glory and the honor that comes from man? So that, that's my question to you now this morning as you listen is listening to this. Do you live for the praise and the glory and the honor and the affirmation that comes from your father? Or do you live for, in your heart, whether it's evident to others or not, do you live for the praise and the glory and the honor that comes from people? Bent towards people or you bent straightened towards God, okay? So why is Paul saying this? Like I said, he's just chastised the churches in Galatia for turning away from the gospel he preached to them. And he's about to begin the, the defense of his apostleship and the gospel that he's preaching. And this verse 10 is his bridging, uh, bridging statement. He says, am I trying to win the favor and approval of men or of God? Okay. And... He then begins the defense of his gospel by defending his apostleship. So Paul's gospel and Paul's calling and apostleship is being challenged by these false teachers who are following after him and confusing the churches that he's basically ministered the gospel in. And he says this, Galatians 1 verse 11 to 12. For I want you to know, believers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. It is not human invention. It's not patterned after any human concept. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. So the apostles, the teachers that were following after Paul to the churches in Galatia and saying Paul doesn't have the full gospel, they were saying that Paul was taught the gospel in Jerusalem by the other apostles and he didn't receive the full and complete um, gospel. So that is why Paul is saying this. He's saying, no, I received it and actually I was taught it by Jesus Christ. And you can see that in Acts 9. He says, I received it from Jesus. I didn't receive it from any man. 
Okay, Paul specifies that he received it having been taught by Christ. So I want to ask you a question this morning, and, and I'm going to take, we're going to be going through Galatians 1, and I'm hoping to finish, finish Galatians 1 this morning, but as I'm going through verse by verse, or couple of verses by couple of verses, I'm going to be sharing the historical background, why Paul was saying that, and then I'm going to turn it around on us, and I'm going to ask us questions for reflection. And if they, if something jumps out at you, and something hits you, in your heart, I want to encourage you jot it down and take it as a as a prayer to uh, as a point to ponder on and to pray around and to repent if you need to. Okay, so I want to ask you this morning: the gospel that you've received, the gospel that you believe, is it diluted? Is it altered? Is it changed in any way by man's traditions? Is it changed? Do you change it? Has it been changed for you for your situation? Does it? Is it changed to suit? your lifestyle? Is it changed to suit your family setup? Maybe you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Have you changed the gospel to suit your circumstances? Because Paul is very clear in Galatians that a gospel that has changed to suit our circumstances is not the gospel at all. The gospel that you share is a patent after any human concept. So when you come into contact with someone who's living a lifestyle that is contrary to the word, do you tone down the gospel so that it makes it more palatable in your mind for them? Because then it's not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. What message is your life to the people around you? Does your life reflect the truth of the gospel? Is it a clear call, a clear clarion call to those around you? Or is it a confusing mix of ideas? Do people look at you and one night you're out partying, drinking, getting drunk, or one night you, they see you kind of drunk, the next morning they see you in church? Is it a mix? Do they see your lifestyle out there? They see you going certain places where Jesus would question you going. You're going not to evangelize. You're going for other reasons. And then they see you doing other things and they're like, this is what we see. And your life is a confusing mix of ideas because our lives need to be a clear call. Do we change our lives like chameleons to suit the situations around us? So when I'm with these friends, am I like this? And then I'm with my family and I'm like this. And then I'm in church and I'm like this. Because that is not my, how God is calling us to live our lives. Okay? In Judges 21 verse 25, it, it's talking about um, Israel. And it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And those were evil days. Proverbs 21 verse 2 to 3, it says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And we hear it a lot today, don't we? We hear people saying, well, if it feels right to you, well, if it feels feels okay to you. Well, if it's right for you, no. There have to be external moral absolutes given by an external moral lawgiver. They have to be. The gospel is the gospel truth. It can't be altered and changed to depend on how we feel or what we think is right in a situation. Every next person will have a different idea, and it's a very slippery slope. We can never be the authors of our own gospel. We can never be the authors of our own moral code. 
And the gospel must, must frame how we view the world in everyday life. It, is, it must inform our values. It must inform how we invest our lives. So there's not the gospel which is limited to church. That's two hours or maybe three hours at a push if the pastor goes over time. Okay, Three hours on a Sunday and then the rest of the week is however we want to live. No, the gospel, it has to be all-inclusive. It's either God or it's not. I, I don't want to play games. It's, I'm either all in or I'm all out. If it's the gospel, it must be the gospel. It must bring joy. It must bring blessing. Amen. It must bring life change. It's either an everyday life or it's not at all. Okay? Now, the gospel must also inform what we buy into and what we don't buy into. Too often I see on Facebook or I hear comments made or I see on, on WhatsApp groups comments made by very well-meaning Christians and I know that they don't intend for it to be negative or they don't intend for it in any, any way but they, yeah, it's things like it's where people actually make comments that are culturally acceptable but are actually anti-biblical so someone may, might, make a concept, may, might make a comment about karma or energy or chi or even people who go along to homeopaths and get homeopathic medicine or go along to or subscribe to Ayurvedic medicine or traditional Chinese medicine or any of this alternative health remedies that are based in a country worldview, a worldview that is contrary to the Bible and well-meaning Christians but it's almost like we say no the church is for this it's for maybe for family and marriage and you're at a push for work and for Sunday church but everything else I can do what I want no the gospel and the philosophy behind our worldview and all of that it must subscribe and be submitted to the gospel in a biblical perspective I can't say in one sense I'm, I'm a Christian submitted to the lordship of Christ and I believe in the gospel and the next day I'm going to a sangoma okay I can't yeah I can't do these types of things we need to figure out what we believe and why, what we don't believe and why, what the gospel is about, what it's not about, and the implications and ramifications of the gospel in my life. And then we live by that, okay? The gospel we preach, the gospel we live by, it cannot be altered to suit certain trends. So if there's a trend where now the same-sex marriages are permitted in this nation. We can't change the gospel. We can't change the truth. We love those people. Jesus came for everyone, but we don't change how we say certain things on what we say and what the Bible's about to suit current trends. Amen. We can't do that. The gospel is that Jesus came. He fulfilled the law on our part because we couldn't do that. He died on the cross, a substitutionary death. He rose again. He defied death so that I don't have to die eternally. And he bore my sicknesses and my death so that I can walk in uninterrupted relationship with the Father and with the Godhead and that I can have eternity with him in heaven. Amen. That is the gospel. And I have God's favor and I have his approval because I'm already a Christian, because I'm born again. I don't come to church to gain his favor. I don't do Christian things to gain his, his favor. I'm already favored by God. I already have his approval. And because he loves me, because I'm in Christ, because he sees Christ in me. He, because I, he loves me and I have his favor, I want to do things that please him. I don't do things that please him because I want to be his child. I'm already his child. Amen. Amen. That's the gospel of grace. And Paul was heated about the purity of this gospel. 
like I said before, the false teachers were adding parts of the Mosaic law to the gospel. And they were saying that, no, 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 to gain God's approval and to gain salvation, you must do this and this and this. Maybe you think, Ish, in order to keep my salvation, I better go to church. No, your salvation doesn't depend on your works. But we do these things because we're accepted and we want to please our Father. Amen. Okay, so we're talking about the gospel that Paul received. The gospel that Paul received and was taught by Christ himself. So turning it around on, on us and on you, what revelation has Christ given you recently? What revelation has Christ given you recently? You know, Matthew 4 verse 4, Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What preceding word has God spoken to you today, yesterday, this weekend? What preceding word in your life are you standing on? Faith comes by hearing the word. We have to stand on his preceding word in order to see breakthroughs. Amen. Amen. Are you with me? Okay, moving on. Galatians 1 verse 13 to 14. Oh, I love how Paul is so open with his life. Listen to what he says. He says, you've heard of my career and former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to hunt down and persecute the church of God extensively and with fanatical zeal, tried my best to destroy it. And you've heard how I surpassed many of my contemporaries among my countrymen in my advanced study of the laws of Judaism, as I was extremely loyal to the traditions of my ancestors. If anyone knew who to, how, how to fulfill the law, it was Paul. He was streaks ahead of his contemporaries. He was streaks ahead of those around him in Judaism. And he did the best to destroy God's church. And he was a murderer. He would murder Christians. And guess what? God rescued him from that. Isn't that awesome? God rescued him from that and turned his life around and chose to use him. So when, when God rescued Paul, he was like at the top of his class. He was the apple of the eye of all those who's who of the Pharisees. He was at the top, okay? Everybody looked to Paul. He was the example. And he turned from that, did a 180 degree turn, and he walked away from that, okay? And this is what he says. Paul says about that in Philippians 3, he says, though I myself might have grounds for confidence in the flesh if I were pursuing salvation by works. If anyone thinks he has reason to be confident in the flesh, that is his own efforts to achieve salvation. I have far more. I don't think he's humble <laughs> when he says that. <laughs> okay. Circumcised when I was eight days old of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, an exemplary Hebrew, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the observance of the law of Pharisee, as to my zeal for Jewish tradition, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, supposed right living, which my fellow Jews believe is the law, I proved blameless. <laughs> but listen to this. But whatever former things were gains to me, as I thought then, these things, once regarded as advancements in merits, I have come to consider as loss and absolutely worthless for the sake of Christ and the purpose which he has given my life. Isn't that beautiful? All of these things, I was the top of my class. I was, you know, the who's who. I was the achiever of the achievers. I, everybody wanted to be in my camp. I've turned away from that and have counted it worthless and lost 
to the priceless privilege and supreme advantage of knowing Christ and growing more deeply and thoroughly acquainted with him, a joy unequaled. For his sake I've lost everything and I consider it garbage so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, believing and relying on him, not having any righteous derived from my own obedience to the law and its rituals, but possessing genuine righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Isn't that amazing? So Paul is saying, before conversion, I was the world's greatest religious rule keeper. I was it, and I knew it. Okay, that is what he's saying. But despite this, he was saved by Christ, called to be a preacher and a leader of the faith. His testimony, to me, his testimony is so powerful. Where God took him from, a murderer, a persecutor of the church, someone who's dead against everything that Christ came for. 180 degree turn, and now he writes most of the New Testament. A powerful apostle with a capital A. Amen. That is the power of God. And Timothy Keller says this, despite all this, Paul's pre-conversion setup. He was not only saved by Christ, but called to be a preacher and a leader of the faith. His testimony is a powerful witness to the beating heart of Christianity, the gospel of grace. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God, working powerfully on the mind and heart to change lives. There is no clearer example than Paul that salvation is by grace alone, not through our moral and religious performance. Though Paul's sins were very deep, he was invited in. So there's nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of God and from the grace of God. Amen. So my question for you in light of that is, what life or way of thinking did God rescue you from? What has God rescued you out of? What have you walked away from? Or what is God asking you to walk away from? completely, no matter the cost to you, for the sake of the gospel? Or do you, like the false teachers, mix a portion of the old with a portion of the new because it appeals to you, because it's easier, because it fits, because it's comfortable? We can never change the truth to suit us. It ceases to be the truth. Okay, what is God calling you to turn from as you pursue the gospel? Galatians 1, 15 to 17. But when God who had chosen me and set me apart before I was born. That's so powerful. God chose him and set him apart before he was born. And yet he did all of that stuff that was anti-God. And God didn't give up on him. Isn't that encouraging? But when God who had chosen me and set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone for guidance regarding God's call and his revelation. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and stayed a while. I love how Paul is so clear, he's unapologetic, that God chose him and set him apart and called him through his grace. Like I was saying, from a murderer of Christians and a persecutor of the church to an author of a large chunk of the New Testament. Paul knew that he was chosen and set apart and 
he knew what he was set apart for and he knew what his message was and he knew who God had called him to speak to. He knew who the message was for and he knew his sphere of influence. He was called to preach the gospel. He was called to preach it to the Gentiles. He knew and he knew what the gospel was. And so I'm wanting to ask you this morning, do you know your sphere? Do you know your metron? Do you know the sphere of influence that God has called you to because he's called each one of us to a specific sphere, a specific metron, a specific area, a specific arena? Do you know the people that he's called you to primarily? Maybe it's a geographic region. Maybe it's an area like the arts. Or maybe it's an area like business. Or maybe it's multiple areas. But do you know what it is? And do you know what your message is, your life message? Because God often gives us messages. It might not be one message. It might be a number. But do you know what that is? Because Paul, I see that. Paul knew it. For example, mine, one of mine is to help people understand how God speaks to us in everyday life and to unlock that in them. Another one is that the process of God and helping people to understand the process of God in their lives. So I know if ever I'm invited to go and speak at another ministry, if I pull out one of those messages, oh, they'll be anointed because they're life messages. And God has given me that message to bless people and to make an impact in people's lives. Do you know what your life messages are? Maybe you're not called to stand up and teach or preach, but God will give us life messages. We all touch people around us on an everyday basis. Amen. What are your life messages? Who are the people that God has called you to? And Paul is clear, hey, he didn't consult with anyone and didn't confer with the apostles in Jerusalem. Remember, he's defending why these guys are saying that he got his, his, his gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem and it was incomplete. So he's saying here, I didn't actually go to Jerusalem. I didn't confer with anyone. The gospel that I got was from Jesus alone. And then he goes to Arabia. And it's very interesting. It seems that he spends three years in Arabia. And... This is something of Paul's own path of growth and discipleship. So he, he must have had some solitary time with God during his three years in Arabia. And there were th thriving cities there. So it's not to say that he was solitary for three years. But he, there was some type of growth and discipleship that happened there. And... Um, we learn about the importance of study and reflection and the development of our own personal acquaintance with God from this particular, from those few words that he says. Solitary time with God is fundamental to the Christian life, but the Christian life cannot be a solitary one. Amen. Solitary time with God is fundamental to the Christian life, but the Christian life cannot be a solitary one. You know, we live in a, in a society right now, especially in Gauteng, where everyone, I think, is battered and buffered sometimes by hurry sickness you know we've got to hurry here and do this and then there's traffic and then we're late and we hurry here to do that and then there's that and in the midst of all the hurriedness there's not a lot of quiet time for contemplation with God unless we actually set it in Amen. So that time is really important. And we see it even with our children and their extracurricular activities. They go to a particular school and there is so much going on in the afternoons. Um, it's just, if, you, if we did everything, I think we would collapse from... from <laughs> we just 
collapse. We have nervous breakdowns. Okay. So this this year, what we've done is we've cut a whole lot of stuff from the kids' extracurricular activities, and we said, okay, this is what we're going to focus on. We're going to commit to that. We're going to commit to that, and that's what we're doing. And you know what? There's time for downtime. There's time for play. There's time for interaction between us, and it's not just stressful. Hurry up, get this. Have you packed that? Are you going? Boom, boom. Instructions, instructions, and we never actually relate. Okay. So it's important that we are countercultural, even where we need to be in order to make time in our families and in our relationships with God to have time for reflection, for relating, and for contemplation. Amen. Okay, I love how Paul was able to give an account of his movements. He said, no, I didn't go there. I went there. This is how long I spent there. I didn't see those people. I only saw them then. And oh, I'm sorry, this keeps doing, keeps popping up. I love how he was able to give an account. He was transparent and he was integrous. And I want to ask you today, are you, can you give an account of your movements? Can you say, well, I was there with that person, I was there with that person. My husband phones me if he's meeting with, uh, uh, you know, if he's meeting someone in terms of work and she's a person of the opposite sex and he's meeting with her. He's like, my love, this is where I am. It'll be in a public place. I'm meeting so-and-so. When the meeting is over, he phones me, my love, we're, over, we're done with the meeting. I'm on my way here. He's open and transparent. And, and this is because there's a predatory press out there. Predatory press. I don't want, he doesn't want someone to come to me and say, you know where I saw your husband and you know he was with. He can give an account, okay? For me, an example is I, was, I would do cycling and I needed more of a challenge, so I began to cycle with my coach's boyfriend, okay? So for two Fridays in a row, I cycled with him and I nearly died both times. They were very hard cycle sessions, okay? <laughs> but they were really good. But I actually went to her after and I said, you know what? I'm not comfortable cycling with him with no one else. There was supposed to be someone else who joined us and the person didn't come. So I, I, for me, I'm not comfortable and we need to be able to be above board and open and honest, even if she might not understand. She's not a believer. But I'm not comfortable. I'm a married woman. I'm a pastor's wife. I don't want that. There's a predatory press out there. I don't want... We need to be able to be above reproach and to be able to give an account of our movements, even concerning when you're at work. Can you give an account of your time that you spend at work? Or are you robbing your boss? Are you sitting on the phone for two hours talking to your friends? Do you take extra long lunch breaks? Do you come to work late? Do you try and steal time? Okay, we need to be integrous. Even with our close friends, we need to be able to be honest and integrous. Galatians 1 verse 18 to 24, we're continuing with Galatians chapter 1. And Paul says, three years later, after he'd been to Arabia for three years, three years later, I, I did go up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas or Peter. And I stayed with him 15 days, but I didn't see any other apostle except James. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches which were in Christ in Judea which is Jerusalem and the surrounding region. They only kept hearing, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the good news of the faith which he was once trying to destroy. And they were glorifying God as the author and source of what had taken place and all that had been accomplished in me. So Paul 
could give an account. He says, you know what? After I'd been to Arabia for three years, I did go up to Jerusalem, but I only saw Peter and I also saw James. But even the churches in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, they didn't know me. I wasn't a regular visitor, so I couldn't have got the gospel from them either. I, they didn't know. The only thing they said and that they knew was that Paul or Saul, who'd once been the biggest persecutor of the church, was now the biggest preacher, most, you know, who had the gospel and had, his life had turned around and they praised God because of it. And so I want to ask you this morning, is your life so radical that people hear about it and give glory to God for this before even meeting you? Because that was the case with Paul. That's what he's saying. Is your life so radical that people give glory to God before they even meet you? Okay, so Paul has been sharing his testimony from Galatians 1 verse 10 onwards, and he's been sharing his life, and he's been sharing his heart, and he's been very honest and open and accountable, and we can learn from that, okay? Now, the whole section of Paul's testimony, which is what I've gone through, is introduced by verse 10, which I looked at at the beginning, where he says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Do you remember that? We looked at that when I started this message. Do you remember that? Thanks. Somebody does over there. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Paul asks. And I'm going to wind down my message based on that. Okay, I think it's quite a key verse in that chapter. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? For Paul, we know the answer. We know the answer was God. He was trying to win God's approval. For you, I don't know. Only you can fill in that answer. Are you trying to win the approval of man or of God? Because you see, the gospel removes or should remove a man-pleasing spirit from us. It removes a man-pleasing spirit, the drive to win the approval of men. And it should replace the spirit with its opposite, which is not seeking to win or seek human approval for what we do. So in other words, the gospel should produce confident and fearless followers of Jesus, doing what is right without concern for the opinion and approval of man. Paul says that he couldn't be a servant of Christ if he were a people pleaser. We can't be servants of Christ if we people pleasers, okay? We can't be man pleasers. Proverbs 29, 25, we looked at that earlier. It says the fear of man will prove to be a snare. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. The fear of man is the opposite of fear of God. We can't have both. Okay? In the Old Testament, fear of God, it doesn't mean being frightened by him. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being filled with wonder, being filled with awe, being filled with attraction at his greatness. And so the fear of man, by implication, is not just fearing man. It's giving that place in our hearts which belongs to God, that place of wonder and awe and desire for the approval, giving that place in our hearts to someone else. And it can only be occupied by one master. Remember, we looked at what Jesus said. We can't serve two masters. So wherever we elevate people in terms of in our mind's eye, elevate them in terms of importance, hold them in awe, crave for their approval and fear their disapproval, that is a not a good situation to be in. It's a situation in which our desire for their blessing in effect amounts to giving them that place in our heart of worship 
which really only belongs to God. So in our hearts, God must occupy that seat. He has the rights and power over my heart. Only God does, okay? So if I'm devastated by the loss of approval of someone, that person has that place in my heart and I need to be freed from that, from the fear of man, okay? Because we can't fear man and fear God. Is there anyone that you can think of right now who holds that place in your heart? Maybe it's someone who you see to be more competent in an area that you're wanting to become more competent in. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's someone who has an attribute that you aspire to have. Maybe it's someone who you think looks good or someone who you look at what they've done or their ministry or their business or their bank accounts and you esteem them highly and it's grown out of proportion and it's unhealthy. Is there anyone who holds this position in your heart? And I just want to look at a few, three, actually, ways that the fear of man can present itself. The first way that the fear of man can present itself is fear of public opinion. So in 1 Samuel 15, verse 24, we see that Saul, this isn't Saul, Paul, this is Saul, the King Saul, okay? We see that Saul disobeyed God because he feared public opinion. God gave him an instruction and he disobeyed because he feared public opinion more than he feared God. And this is the snare which the fear of man brings. Because if I fear man more than I fear God, when the rubber hits the road and it comes to crunch time, I'm going to obey what I think public wants me to do more than what I know God wants me to do. That's the snare. So fear of public opinion. Fear of losing attention. Sometimes we can fear losing attention from certain people. And we see this in Judges 16 when Samson, another strong guy, Samson, when he gives in to Delilah, it was because he was afraid of losing her sexual attention. Sometimes we fear losing attention, and that's a fear of man. And sometimes, and I think this one is very common, is eye service. And we see this in Ephesians 6, 6-7, and Colossians 3, 22-23. And these notes will be on the website, so you can get these scriptures. But Paul mentions this very common form of fear of man, which is eye service. And it means to do something, to do a job, to do whatever you're going to do, only to the degree that you get the approval of, that you're noticed, that you get the credit for from other people around you. And I think this is a big problem, especially amongst Christians. We do what we do, even our work. We do it as unto man and not as unto God. When God says all of life is worship to him, all of life, everything I do, when I commit to do it, I do it as unto him. If I'm only doing it because I'm going to be seen to be doing it, then as soon as I'm not seen by anyone or by those that I want to be seen by, I'm going to do a shoddy job. Okay? We need to work as unto the Lord, as worship to Him. Not a situation when the cat's away, the mice are at play. When your boss is out the door, now you do whatever you want. No. When the pastor's not at church, now we don't show up. No. We do what we do, even at home. Who am I when no one is looking? What is my prayer life like when I'm not preaching? What is my study time like even when I'm not ministering? Who am I when no one is looking? What is my worship like when there's no band up on stage? Who am I and what am I like when no one is looking? Am I a people pleaser? Do I do stuff for eye service? Are my movements at the front or up on stage are completely different to how I am at home? Because then, then there's something wrong. Then there's a hypocritical situation there. Amen. 
Okay, so how consistent are you in your attitude, in your conscientiousness, in the absence of people watching over you? How consistent are you? How consistent am I? What do I do for eye service to please man? Because I need to repent of that. I need to repent of that. Okay, so how does the gospel destroy man-pleasing or the fear of man? Well, we're freed to, seek the, to, to, motiv- to be motivated to seek the approval from God. And as soon as my heart is filled with that, there's no space for fear of man. Amen. If I can focus on obeying God and, and doing what I do as unto Him, there's no space for fear of man. In the gospel, we discover that trusting in Christ brings God's God's full and complete favor and approval. Trusting in Him. So I trust in Him and I'm saved and I'm set apart for God's purpose. And when God sees me, He sees Jesus in me and He approves of that. I don't have to gain that approval, okay? But then I live my life in a way that pleases my Father in heaven who's bought me, who's adopted me as His child. Amen. The Christian is assured of God's love and approval. God is pleased with us in Christ. So the Christian longs to obey God, not for himself so that God will save him, but out of gratitude to God who has already saved him. And so Paul lives as a servant of Christ. God's approval liberates us to live in a way which God approves of. Okay, so today I've completed, hallelujah, in good time, (laughs) I've completed Galatians chapter 1, and we've looked at Paul and his conversion and the sharing of his testimony and the defense of his apostleship and the defense of the gospel that he preached, and we've looked at how incredibly passionate he was about the purity of the gospel, this gospel that changed his life and this gospel that he gave his life for. And so as I conclude and as I land this message, alongside all the other questions I've asked you if you just you can bow your heads I'm going to ask a couple of questions and I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond to the word that I've shared this morning